welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. Welcome to the second episode in our series on the world after coronavirus. The COVID-19 crisis has dramatically increased government spending, and whether it's progressive lawmakers looking for ways to increase health and social spending, or whether it's conservative lawmakers concerned about the ballooning deficit, um, there's increasing pressure to finally take a look at the defense budget. Um, Politico last week ran a paired set of articles, the first by Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and the second by two scholars from the National Taxpayers Union and the R Street Institute, both conservative leading institutions. The articles make the case for substantial cuts to defense spending from both a liberal and a conservative perspective. Uh, Defense spending now, of course, consumes over half of all discretionary spending by the U.S. government. These spending-based arguments dovetail with a pretty strong strategic case for smaller defense budgets and an argument that our foreign policy spending is focused almost exclusively on the military at the expense of aid or diplomacy. Yet even with all of these pieces in agreement, it's still going to be an uphill struggle to cut Pentagon funding. An amendment to the NDAA was recently defeated, and there's still strong opposition to cuts in Congress and the White House. So joining me today to discuss the future of defense spending after coronavirus are two of Cato's resident defense policy specialists. Eric Gomez is Cato's director of defense policy, and Brandon Valeriano is a senior fellow in defense policy studies. Guys, welcome back to Power Problems. Great to be here. Thanks, Emma. So let's just start with the debate. Um, Obviously, we've been talking uh, at Cato about defense cuts for a while, um, but why are we suddenly seeing a lot of pressure on, on the defense budgets now. Um, are these political articles that I, that I talked about, are they a sign of something deeper that's happening in Washington? I think what it comes down to has a lot to do with the pandemic and, and some of the things that it's laying bare. So we've had a loss of life and liberty and happiness to the American people from a disease that has been far, far worse in far short of a time than terrorism, than great power threats than Iran or North Korea. And so there's that aspect of, you know, this thing is a real problem for U.S. national security in the sense that it's injuring and killing Americans um, and destroying the economy. Um, And also that uh, the the high spending on military things really throws into stark relief um, just what you can get for the money. Uh, our former colleague, Chris Preble, now at the Atlanta Council, wrote a great blog post a couple months ago where he, you know, if you break down the cost of one additional F-35 fighter jet, you can buy a couple thousand ventilators for that price. So um, in a world where the military keeps saying, you know, oh, we need... billion plus every single year or else the world collapses because we can't deter effectively anymore, sort of falls on deaf ears when you have the impact of the virus plus the fact that, um, you know, you can get a lot more for the money if you're willing to put that money towards other priorities. There were some pretty stunning statistics in in those two articles, um, one of which was that uh, the defense budget now consumes half of all discretionary government spending. Um, Another one of which is that spending adjusted for inflation is now back at the level it was during the Vietnam War. 
Um, so, uh, you know, that there seems to be a realization, I think, on both sides that the spending has got a little out of control. Brandon, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, I think Erica is, of course, correct that the coronavirus is a necessary motivating factor for all these reassessments. But the other hand, too, we also have a possibility of the coming new administration and a long period of what I think the most normal observer might call strategic pause. Obviously, there's an intense debate about China, Iran, Russia, other countries. But for the basic American, it's tough to really notice a uptick in conflict, really. And it would really bring into question and bring into sharp relief the amount we're spending at, at a time of peace. And that's really where all this is coming from. It's kind of a confluence of all different factors coming together at the same time. You know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this debate, um, you know, and, and how it's playing out in both political parties. So obviously on the, the left side of the political spectrum, um, it's a sort of a much more coherent point. Um, the, the Democratic Party seems to be generally agreed that some cuts are in order, although not perhaps how much to cut the Pentagon. Um, but on the conservative side of the aisle, there, there's, um, you know, there's some strong support for cutting uh, the defense budget from deficit hawks um, and also some seriously strong opposition. So there, there was an article um, earlier in the week pushing back on some of this, and it was entitled uh, Cancel Culture Comes for the Pentagon, which is a little patently ridiculous. Um, but the, the idea there um, is pretty representative of a segment of the, the conservative wing of the Republican Party, which is the idea that we should never cut the defense budget. Um, and, and I was wondering what you guys think. Is there actually prospect for traction on the right, um, you know, in the Trump era or otherwise? I think there is in some ways, uh, especially, you know, I work with the military from time to time. And there's a greater awareness that we can't do everything with the DOD, that we need to basically engage the State Department more, USAID. We need to do more with other app or instruments of American power. And I think there's a great awareness of that. And there's a great awareness that we've kind of gutted some of our other aspects of American power. That dime isn't necessarily dime anymore. It's just become a big M. And I think that's going to motivate some people to believe and want a change. I'm I'm a little I'm I'm a little less sanguine about the right coming around just because it seems like the hill follows the president's lead on a lot of things and Trump has made, you know, look how strong and tough we are a big part of his political messaging while in office. Um it will be interesting to see what happens in the next fiscal year budget cycle because right now the National Defense Authorization Act is making its way through the Congress. The House, I believe, just voted on it um, yesterday, their version of the bill, and the Senate already passed their version. So now it's time to do conference. And what's interesting is that the, the effects of the pandemic and the economic impact don't really seem to be weighing on either chamber, at least not yet. And so I wonder if this is going to be a bit of a lagging effect where we start to see some of those budget hawk concerns, or, or not budget hawk, sorry, uh, deficit hawk concerns come into play more next year um, when I think the effects and, and trying to determine just how long-lasting the blow to the U.S. economy from the virus is going to be come into clearer focus. Yeah, and we also may have a policy analysis piece coming out in the near future. Um, there's some research that's been done by Rosalia um, Capella-Zelinsky and Kajia uh, Shlade, uh, I can't say the last name right, 
But um, what they basically suggested is past recessions have not had an impact on the next year's budget. Um, it takes a few years for that to happen. So from that perspective, historically, we have a problem in that real budgetary concerns don't really have a direct impact right away. There's a bit of a delay. Yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting point. Um, and I mean, I guess particularly in the current situation, you know, we, we don't know how bad this recession is going to be by, you know, by historical standards. If you just take a snapshot, uh, there is a horrifyingly bad recession. Um, but there's a, a lot of talk about this might end up being a very V-shaped recession so that we come out of it very fast, um, return to normal, um, you know, once we have a vaccine or something like that. So um, lawmakers don't know. But it, but let's talk a little more about that NDAA process um, and exactly what's going on, because I'm interested to know, um, maybe it's not impacting the top line, but have we seen anything, um, you know, amendments related to the coronavirus, attempts to shift funding to public health, uh, diplomacy, anything like that? Or, or is this just uh, sort of a, a defense budget that nobody's really actually noticing the current situation? Um, we wrote a whole, <laughs> uh, Brandon, uh, myself and Lauren Sander wrote an op-ed for uh, Defense One about this when the Senate Armed Services Committee released their version of the NDAA. And basically, no. Uh, right. It, it, it seemed like most of the provisions in it don't really address COVID at all. Um, there's some mention in there of increasing Defense Department related research on uh, like vaccines and biosecurity, but it's pretty low in terms of numbers. I believe it's in the double digit millions, which in a 700, you know, 40 billion dollar authorization is not that much. Um I'm less clear on on how the appropriation side of the House uh, or side of the um, Congress has addressed it. They might they might be more willing to move the money around, but surprisingly, like there hasn't really been as much. Um, the other big thing, uh, the other big matter of debate in the current NDAA cycle is: Will the bill give more money to uh, contractors, defense contractor companies that have had to have work slowage or work stoppage due to the virus? Um, to the tune of probably a few billion dollars, um, which I, is proving to be pretty divisive with, I, I think, Democrats opposing the idea and Republicans supporting it. But so far, yeah, that, that seems to be the big impact. Yeah, it's very disappointing that it's pretty clear the DOD is not really planning for the pandemic, which should be a clear reality after the Teddy Roosevelt went down, the aircraft carrier went down to a massive outbreak. And we are not preparing for how to supply our troops with the necessary PPE they may need. We're not prepared for outbreaks in deployment. Um, we haven't really done anything in this area. And as Eric mentioned, there's a very minimal amount in the NDAA that might be spent on COVID-19 research. But I think what they're really doing is separating the process out between the NDAA and whatever may be another stimulus package. And that these two things are going on parallel at the same time. But they don't necessarily need to be divided. There, there can be clear alignments and a clear need to rethink some of the things we're doing in the Defense Department. But I don't think that conversation is really going on right now. 
Yeah, that's one I think one of the more interesting things about the current NDAA process. Um, I mean, it seems to me that the defence contractors should be eligible for the standard coronavirus PPP aid. Um, so it's not clear to me why they need extra aid in the in the defence budget. But that um, that just again sort of seems to be sailing through Congress with very little uh, debates. Um, yeah, and uh, the, you know, as you probably know, the main debate right now from the Trump administration is whether or not they're going to be able to rename the bases. And um, that's something the DOD wants to do. I think just about every branch has outlawed the um, or banned the Confederate flag at this point. Um, but having a provision about renaming the bases, even over three years, which has the, that's what the Senate wrote in, um, Trump has suggested he may veto that uh, NDAA. So that seems to be the top concern, which is troubling given the scale and scope of this virus right now. Yeah, it's uh, frankly, I mean, it's it's amazing just how um, apart this is from from reality. Um, it, it seems to just be proceeding as if nothing was was different. So I guess let's let's shift gears a little um, because it, it sounds like this year's budget um, is probably not going to see major cuts. Um, but let's talk a little bit further down the road. Um, so you know, if you were to um, Think about redesigning funding in foreign affairs. Um, what would you think about cutting? Um, you know, after coronavirus, where do you think lawmakers should start to look next year as we go through the next iteration of this process? My main two concerns are really getting rid of some legacy programs. There are a lot of legacy programs that um, the the branches of the service don't really exactly want. And um, what I'm talking about is, you know, some versions of F-35. We're not exactly clear what we're building in terms of the littoral ship, um, the, the littoral combat ship. We haven't really made decisions about uh, uh, AI-powered ships versus man-powered ships. And these are the real concerns in some ways, is that we're spending on a current generation of technology that we don't have a strategy for, nor ha do we have a vision for the future. So really, I think we need to focus more on future modernization efforts and seeking to understand how data and machine learning and AI are going to affect the defense budget moving forward. But we're not having this conversation. And more often than not, we're seeing each branch having parallel conversations where we're just spending more and more money and we don't have any streamlined priorities. On my end, and I mean, it might not come as a surprise to folks who are uh, familiar with my own work, but um, I'm, I'm watching the nuclear modernization discussion happen very closely and the missile defense discussion. And I think that, you know, the modernization plan is going to cost us at least, you know, probably $1.5 trillion over 30 years. And we're already seeing modernization, nuclear modernization trade-offs come into the defense budget. For example, with the Columbia SSBN, the new uh, ballistic missile submarine, eating up a large portion of the Navy shipbuilding budget. Um, and the chief of staff of the Air Force has said something similar where you know, if we're going to do the new bomber, then we're not going to have much money available to do conventional modernization. So you get into that that trade-off space of do you want to have uh, the nuclear modernization plan as it exists, or do you want to, and is that worth sacrificing certain conventional capabilities over the short run? I would be fine. I, I think that the United States could handle nuclear deterrence missions okay um, if the modernization plan was scaled back somewhat. If the bomber program was delayed, uh, if the buys of ICBMs or certain aircraft came down a little bit, you would still be able to have effective deterrence. And this is, you know, connecting to something else related to 
national security that we haven't discussed yet, but this is where I think things like arms control and the new START agreement are very important. If you can have legal binding uh, restrictions on yourself and Russia through arms control agreements, it might be possible to sell a smaller, uh, a slightly leaner nuclear and modernized nuclear force without suffering a a trade-off in deterrence value, for example. So I think that's, that's one area where I think we could be a lot more creative in terms of our thinking than we have been. Um, and it would also require us to think more carefully about putting more resources into things like the State Department and the parts of the government that handle the like non-military aspects of national security and diplomacy. And in terms of specifics, I think there are three target areas. There's the OCO funding, the Overseas Contingency Operation funding, which we calculate to be the fourth largest, uh, what is the term, Eric, uh, the fourth largest branch of the... I think it would be the fourth largest uh, federal agency by like discretionary spending, if it was its own thing. I, uh, right now, the in the current NDAA, the authorization for OCO is about $69 billion. And this has become a way to skirt budget caps and to basically hide funding for planned operations when the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund is supposed to be for unplanned, unforeseen operations. And we've been doing this for, what, you know, 15 years at this point, since 9-11, basically. So this funding category has, has really gone out of control. It's become entrenched. It has to end. The other thing is they're kind of parallel uh, issues, but... Um, the Navy legislatively mandated in last year's NDAA, or I think it was two years ago, that they have a 355 size military uh, naval force. Well, no one's really clear what that force will be and how you actually maintain that force and how you build that force, nor do we even have the ability to build that force given the projections for how large and how expensive that uh, force will cost. And then this year, we're starting to see more and more noise and I need to see what's coming out in the final NDA. But the Air Force is pushing for a 386 squadron force, which um, a friend of mine made the joke. They just wanted a number higher than the Navy's number, which is not exactly clear why they need 386 squadron force. What's this going to do? And why do we need this power projection during a time of peace? But it's supposedly based on war games. And we have not seen evidence of these war games. And uh, what we kind of suggest probably happened is someone did one war game and then they bootstrapped, um, which just basically a statistical way of replicating that one finding over and over again to resupport the original finding. I think that's probably what happened, but we don't exactly know what the justification for this program is. And it's not clear that the Navy has justification for the 355 force naval, um, whatever we're going to call it. <laughs> I want to call it a flotilla. I've been watching a lot of historical stuff on YouTube. lately. <laughs> and while we're talking about, like weird budget pathologies and, and, and bad thinking. Um, Congress isn't immune from this either. Uh, so for I, I know a lot of the examples we discussed were about, um, you know, some pathologies on the military side, but on the Congress's side, um, right now in the NDAA process and in previous NDAA processes, we're seeing that Congress wants the military to authorize to buy things that the military doesn't ask for. Um, a good example of this is F-35s. The Congress has repeatedly said, you know, the military will give a number of this is how many F-35s we want to buy in a year. And Congress says, why don't you buy more? Or why don't you keep this system that you guys want to retire? And part of that can, you know, I, I think it's Congress's right and proper role to have uh, say so over authorizations and budgets. However, 
there's also an aspect of sometimes they can limit options for innovative thinking uh, if the military wants to you know move in a different direction because of their picture and then you have representatives for either you know jobs in their district region reasons or other entrenched interests saying how about you don't do that and how about you continue on with stuff that you want to get rid of but we want you to keep yeah. yeah, I mean, so some of these obviously are decades old pathologies, right? We've got yeah. Eisenhower talking about some of these pathologies back in the 50s. Um, I do want to cut, follow up a little on the OCO question, the Overseas Contingency Operations Funding. Um, there was a, an effort, I believe, in this NDAA process to try and kill at least some of that funding and, and make it more regularized. Can you guys talk a little bit what happened there? Yeah, so the um, so the NDAA involves authorizers and appropriators. And on the appropriator side, the House um, Appropriations Committee, Subcommittee on Defense, uh, issued a report along with their um, appropriations bill saying that they don't like OCO uh, and they would want the Defense Department to not submit any more OCO requests starting next fiscal year. So basically that they said they'd be okay to authorize it this year, but going forward, they would demand, you know, between, and they cited a few reasons for this. Uh, number one, just lack of transparency. Number two, uh, an envisioned drawdown of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and said that, you know, given these reasons, we don't think this is a good thing to keep doing. So it, it's unclear if that will actually happen because now the fun time of you know, creating the conference version of the bill where the Senate and the House sit down and try and come up with something that they can send to the president. Um, but it is a it is a budget category that a lot of defense analysts such as Brandon and I um, have wanted to to spare back or get rid of for a long time. Um, so we're, we're hopeful that this will, you know, get rid of get rid of OCO once and for all. Um, but we'll see. And yeah, they would have to move, the Defense Department would have to move towards a supplemental funding requests if they wanted to, if they wanted to ask for the money. And so I think the idea is by having them do those supplemental requests, you bring more transparency and oversight to the process instead of just doing a one-off, like, okay, yeah, you can have $70 billion in OCO this year for whatever you want. So we should probably, I think, before we move on, address the elephant in the room. Um, and the other impact that the coronavirus is having is it's making it far more likely that we're going to see a Biden administration come January. I think current polling has Biden ahead of Trump by as much as 12 or 14 points nationally. Um, and that does not necessarily that does not mean it's a sure thing, um, but it does make the prospect of a Biden administration and a Biden foreign policy and defense policy more likely. Um, so perhaps we could just talk a little bit about um, what that might mean for the defense budget. Um, Biden um, has committed to include recommendations from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party on a lot of issues, but foreign policy was not among them. So at this point, looking out, what can we say about a potential Biden administration's approach to defense policy and to the defense budget? That's going to be something that I think is going to develop over time, and it really will depend on who he chooses as the defense secretary. As we see right now from the Democratic side, um, like the Bernie Sanders plan to basically cut 10% or 16% seems to be a fairly reckless attempt to just strip things out of the budget. 
where um, you know the, the amendment we were looking at recently that got voted down was actually even ripping out COVID-19 funds, education funds. So I, I think the, at the most basic level, the Biden administration is going to need to try and rebuild the military. And the way Trump talks about, um, the way the Trump administration talks about the whole situation is that the military has been built up and it's been saved. But um, I think we have a number of serious problems, including education, including sexual harassment, including basic safety on the bases. All these things need to be dealt with quite um, convincingly. And then we need to have a clear strategy for this 355 Navy. We need to have a clear strategy for this Air Force. We need to figure out how we're going to cooperate with the Space Force and Air Force, all these other operational branches that have a strong investment in sensors and surveillance. And how do we coordinate this? How do we develop a plan for strategic operations in the age of advanced sensors and intelligence? And we haven't done that yet. Um, the NDS was late, um, and now the NDS is outdated with its focus on peer competitors, when it's probably likely that Iran or some other country is our main challenger. So there's a lot of things we need to rethink, but I think that the first step is going to be stabilization efforts. We need to stabilize the military and root out radical insurgents, uh, think about um, racial recognition and getting rid of Confederate bases. There's a lot of just basic things that need to be done, and then there's a lot of strategic things that need to be done. I don't think we're going to see any grand operational plans. Um, the main thing that will actually have to happen will be a reinvestment in the diplomatic initiatives. Eric, any thoughts? Yeah, the the big sort of question mark in my mind is the U.S.-China relationship and what role that plays for Biden. Um, we're already seeing some of it in the campaign, and I know that you know what presidents promise in a campaign or a candidate's promise in a campaign often doesn't come to pass, um, but there seems to be a desire between Trump and Biden to see who can uh, out-hawk whom on China. Uh, and I wonder if this will carry over to the defense budget, because that's one area where if the U.S.-China relationship continues to worsen, just this morning, there was you know, reports that the U.S. Want, demanded that China close their embassy or their consulate in Houston. And so I think this could drive a lot of political support in a Biden administration, but also on the Hill, to keep defense spending relatively high because of the worry about China. And so I, I could see that working against any kind of uh, impulse that an administra- a Democratic administration might have for defense spending reductions. Um, and in that case, I think, you know, there, there needs to be more discussion, especially from team restraint like ourselves about what does a military look like uh, that, that's supposed to handle a, a, a China, a world where the U.S.-China relationship is in tatters. Um, and Brandon and I and, and other folks at Kato are working on that. Um, that's going to be a big part of my uh mission going forward as director of defense policy studies is trying to think about what a force posture for restraint looks like. Um, but I think that could be the U.S.-China question and, and the desire to kind of get tough on China, whatever that means, um, could be a big factor even in a Biden administration that professes to want some cuts to keep spending relatively high because, yeah. That's going to be really interesting. And um, as you probably know, the Trump administration has inserted itself into the South China Sea territorial disputes. 
it recently, as Eric mentioned, it demanded that in response to hacking operations that China pull out of a consulate. But their strategy seems to be deterrence for intelligence operations, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. You can't deter intelligence. If we do see a Biden administration, I think the main pivot will be towards Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, and it probably will pull back from the South China Sea territorial issue. And it'll probably pull back from this intelligence issue because there's no real solution based on the strategy we have now. So I'm curious where we're going to go with China in the future, but I don't think it's going to be the same. There's a lot of critiques about the Trump administration's China plan, mainly because it doesn't engage multilateral and, uh, and international institutions. And it doesn't really engage international trade and doesn't really engage repression. And those are the main areas of disagreement we have right now. So I'm not really sure what the plan is, given the way it's been stated and how effective it might be. Well, uh, I'm afraid we're running out of time here. Um, my, my takeaway from this as somebody that doesn't really study defense policy is the coronavirus hasn't really made a major impact yet on the defense budget. Um, it may in the future, um, but the way the Biden administration's foreign policy is shaping up equally, it might not. So um, I think that is all we have time for. So thank you so much uh, to Eric and Brandon for coming on and talking about this. Yeah, thanks for having us, Emma. Yeah, thanks for having So thanks to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, if you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. You can leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. <laughs>